Hello and welcome to Hustlers for a Cause, the podcast for growth-oriented entrepreneurs and executives who aspire to create positive change in the world. Are you in business for more than just profit? Then like and subscribe today and join our channel to become a hustler for a cause. Welcome to Hustlers for Codes. In today's show, we are welcoming Chris Fields. Chris is what we call a disruptor, one of those inspiring persons who aims uh, to make more than just an impact in the world. He actually aims to disrupt accepted norms and create an imagined future. He is the founder and executive director of the Mercy Project, which mission is to bring new life to children in slavery in Ghana and empower them. He's also the author of two inspiring books, which we will hopefully hear more about today. Chris, thank you so much for joining the show. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Thanks a lot. So I've introduced yourself quite briefly, but you've been involved in quite a big mission. So I think we'd love to hear more about how it all started and the kind of things you've been involved over the last few years. Yeah. So the big mission that you reference is the work we're doing in Ghana, Africa called Mercy Project. And I first read a book about child trafficking a number of years ago, almost 12 years ago now. And at the time, even though now human trafficking has become pretty well known, most people are aware that it's a pretty big problem in the world. 12 years ago, no one was really talking about it. And I had never heard of it. And I was shocked. We were pregnant with our first baby at the time. And I remember reading this book and thinking about the children I was reading about and contrasting that to my own unborn child and thinking, you know, I had all these big hopes and dreams for her life. And then here were these children that didn't even have time in the day to dare to hope or dream because they were working all day. And so just sad when I read that book and I felt compelled to do something. And so I I Googled the author, I called her, found her phone number. I called her. I asked her if I could go to Africa with her. Three months later, I went to Africa with her and I went out on the world's largest man-made lake called Lake Volta in Ghana, Africa. And I started meeting these little boys and girls who'd been trafficked into the fishing industry, came from very poor families who couldn't even afford to feed them sometimes. And so they would send them to work for fishermen hoping that the child would at least get to eat some food if they were fishing every day. And I found out that the fishermen, many of them were actually trafficked children themselves. Vicious cycle of poverty and economic disparity. And so I came home from that trip and my wife and I started raising some money thinking we would give it to another organization. And we were quite successful at raising some money, raised around 75,000 US dollars in nine months, just kind of you know, on the side nights and weekends, it was kind of our side hustle, if you will. But over that same time, I I took two more trips to Ghana for a total of three. And I realized that no one was really cause, uh, sorry, no one was really solving the root cause of the problem, which was economic. And so I, I felt like I was faced with this crossroads, you know, do I try to solve the root problem, but that means I'm going to have to do something. I don't know what. 
or do we just sort of walk away knowing we've done more than most people, but we still haven't really helped? And so I quit my job and we started Mercy Project um, 11 years ago. And we now have a staff of 15 Ghanaians. They're amazing. Uh, we're completely run by native Ghanaians. We don't have any Americans in Ghana anymore. And we've now rescued 207 children out of human trafficking, reunited all of those children back into their families. Uh, none of them have ever been re-trafficked. We're working within the family to make sure we empower the entire family with economic solutions instead of just helping the children. And then the fishermen who owned the children originally, and they were trafficked children themselves, we've actually taught them a new way to fish. So we teach them how to do cage fishing or aquaculture, which actually makes them more money than when they use the labor of the children. And so they actually voluntarily release the children back into their families because they don't need them anymore. And when we're able to do that, it keeps the fishermen from buying more children because we solved the reason that he or she needed the fishermen in the first place. So that's our work with Mercy Project, uh, which is one of many things I've done in the last few years, but definitely the most meaningful. Right. That's very impressive because, as you said, it's kind of a vicious cycle and uh, breaking that cycle is very difficult. I'm assuming it's really about changing mentality. And from what you're saying, you also brought some kind of skills and new techniques of fishing. Because I was about to ask you about how, you know, you managed to get them voluntarily, right? Because that's a really, that's key, I guess, to that. So. Right. What, what was one of the first things that you started with? Uh, was it conversation with local? How do we start on a project like that? Yeah, I mean, it was for more than a year, it was listen and learn. I mean, I was so concerned that we would make the mistake so many Western NGOs make, which is to come in and try to force our ideals into another culture. And I'm an American, so I can say, Americans are the worst at this. I mean, you can see this all over the globe that American diplomacy and, you know, we Americans can be very arrogant people and they like, hey, this is how we do it in America. This is how you should do it here. And I just, I was so committed, like, listen, how do we honor the local culture and also help them create a better future? I mean, Clearly, children should not be trafficked, and this is not just a cultural norm. I mean, it's illegal in Ghana to traffic a child. It's just not enforced because they don't have the police present, the, the legal, you know, setup to enforce it. So it's, it's not that they, it's not just like culturally everyone's doing it. It's like, no, it's not. Everyone understands it's not good. People just don't have a viable alternative. How do we come up with a viable alternative? Well, first we have to understand the problem. And we can't understand the problem by using our perception of the problem. We have to understand the problem by asking the people actually affected by the problem. Why is this happening? What would you do differently? What do you need? You know, what led you to this in the first place? And so I just talked to hundreds of Ghanaians that were impacted by fishing trafficking or just they were in other NGOs that kind of ran parallel tracks to the fishing industry that I knew would have local knowledge. Uh, and that's really how we got started. But that was a long process. I mean, it was almost a year 
of just learning before we ever actually began engaging in any kind of activity. Yeah, and I understand educating yourself about the local culture is very important. And it's great that you decided to take a, another perspective, another approach. You know, I think there's like a lot of recurrent problems in, in different countries. And if we do always the same way and it hasn't worked in the past, it's important to take a new approach and understand cultures. And what you're saying as well is that you had like a, a key people on the ground, so local partners. In, in your opinion and looking back, who really played the biggest role in helping you reach out to those villages and speak to people uh, over there? Yeah, I mean, those first few employees that we hired were, I mean, they were crucial to the success of the program. I mean, I mean, I just had an idea, even after all those conversations, I had an idea of what I thought should and could happen. But actually having employees that were really more like partners and friends who would say, look, we can't say it like this, or we can't do it like that. Here's, you know, I would lay out a plan and they would say, oh, we cannot say it like that in Ghana. We would never speak this way. It's like, okay, well, how would we speak in a way that would say the same thing? And, you know, they, so much positive influence on, and we're working in rural villages where, the average person might have a first or second grade education. And they're saying, listen, we have to tell stories. Like, this is how Ghanaians communicate, especially Ghanaians who haven't really been to school. They communicate through stories. So they would say, Chris, you know, I like this idea. You have to put it into a story because the way you're sending it to me, I went to college, I went to university, I understand. But we're going to be sitting under a mango tree talking to people who you know, they learn to write their name and, and maybe count to 50, but they don't have any schooling past that. You can't have a complex idea. They have to understand why it's important for them, why it matters to them, why it's going to benefit them, why it's going to make their lives better. And the way you're going to do that is through a story. And so, you know, really just even coming up with that narrative that would allow me to honestly but meaningfully tell the story of a future where children weren't trafficked. I mean, those early Ghanaian employees were instrumental in, and I mean, I couldn't even speak the language. You know, Ghana is a small place. It's in land size. It's the size of the state of Oregon in the United States, which is not a huge state. And they have like almost 80 dialects in Ghana. So even my employees needed to be able to speak four or five languages so that when we went into a fishing village, say, okay, which language are we speaking in today? You know, and then we would all agree yeah. and then we would have that conversation. So they, they were critical to the success. Right. That's very interesting, Angela. You know, you seem to have been surrounding yourself with a lot of people. And I think maybe this is a key takeaway from your journey, uh, because a lot of people want to make changes in the world, but they try to go alone. And it seems that, you know, you had teams, maybe local teams, like you say, those people played a big role in maybe, you know, entering that culture, like you say, in terms of languages, education, everything is so different. So, and you talked about the number of children. Please remind me again, the number of children you managed to be yeah. So far, it's 207 children that we've, 20 villages 
that we've brought these cages and aquaculture to 207 children that have been rescued and reunited with their families. That's pretty impressive. And I'd like to ask you about the time it took the first time you managed to you know, get someone out of slavery. I think you, you mentioned a number somewhere, like was it 800 days or I just can't remember, but. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so it was almost 800 days from the day I quit my job and started Mercy Project to the day we rescued our first group of trafficked children. And I use that number a lot when I'm gently reminding people about the power of persistence, that I think so many of us, we make a commitment. We say, okay, I want to do this thing. This thing matters to me. I'm, I feel passionate about this. And then four days later, we're like, why has nothing changed? Come on look, I've been eating vegetables for four days and I still don't have a six pack or I can't run a marathon and I, I did three runs this week or, you know, I'm trying to write a book and I wrote every day and I still don't have even one chapter. And it's like, we got to play the long game. I mean, anything we're going to do that's meaningful is going to take some significant amount of time. Now, maybe it's not 800 days, but I know that the difference between people who have big ideas and people who execute big ideas, the only difference is persistence. And it's remembering why you cared so much at the beginning, even when it's already been six months or 12 months, and really keeping that in front of you as a reminder of what's at stake and why you want to do what it is that you want to do. It's a great way, I think, to you know, to remind yourself why you're doing this. The why question, I think, is very important. And uh, I, I watched uh, your TED Talk uh, where you, you, you have a map of disruption, correct me if I'm wrong, but you talk about three key points, like make a commitment, action plan, and persist until transformation. And these are really three very important points. Like you say, we can uh, you know, have an objective, but we get discouraged quite quickly. I think it happens, it's also human nature. But going till the end, it's very impressive. Um, was there any moment where you thought, oh, I'm, I'm not gonna be able to do that, it's just, you know, it seems impossible. Did you get stuck at some point? And how did you go around that, you know, getting stuck? I mean, I got stuck more times than I could even describe to you. I mean, I could write books on the mistakes that, that we made. I mean, it's a hard thing that we're trying to do. I mean, you're, you're trying to counter decades of cultural norms where three generations of fishermen have been trafficking children because it's the cheapest, uh, most simple form of labor in an industry where margins are pennies every single day. And so, I mean, we made so many mistakes that, I mean, it's, it's uncountable how many, truly uncountable, how many mistakes we made. So, so yes, there were more than, more times than I would care to admit um, that it felt like the task was impossible. So I think what, what was really helpful for me was a couple of things. I think the first thing was early on in my life, when I was around 19 years old, I had a couple of really significant things happen that really changed the course of my life. So I ran my first marathon. I ran for mayor of my hometown, uh, which had about 50,000 people. I got third place out of five in that election. And I was hired to direct a camp, like a summer camp for children 
of low income homes who couldn't afford to go to summer camp. And so some of these children were almost my age, by the way, they were 17, 18 years old, and I was 19 years old. So, so those three things happened, and each one of those happened in a six month period. It was six months total. And all of a sudden, it was like I realized so much of life we go through feeling like life happens to us and thinking that we're observers instead of realizing that we're active participants. You know, when those three things happen, in all of them, I had enormous probability of failure. Like the odds were completely stacked against me. And yet I was excited about the challenge because what I knew about myself, even at just 19 years old, was that I would rather try my best to live a meaningful life and fail than to not try to live a meaningful life at all. And the quote that I use that was the most underlined, highlighted quote in the Kindle version of my first book, it said, my life was changed forever when my willingness to do great things outgrew my fear of failure. And for me, I had a decade of being at risk of failing and sometimes failing and still trying again before I ever started Mercy Project because I had started that journey at such a young age. And so when I faced those moments that felt truly impossible, I would just say to myself, look, are there still kids in slavery? And do you still feel like you need to try to do something about it? And when the answer to both of those was obviously yes, then I would just try something else. And I knew all along, I knew this could be a huge failure. This could be a disaster. I mean, this, this could end up being a waste of years of my time and my family's, you know, stability and all of that. But at the end of the day, my desire to make a difference was so much more important to me than being afraid of failing. And so that's what motivated me to keep going, even in those moments when I really wasn't sure if it made sense to keep going because I had so much doubt. Yeah, it's very inspiring. I, I should be taking notes. I'm going to be listening to that podcast over and over again to motivate myself whenever I have a doubt about something. And I think you're right. I think, you know, when you get a try and you try again, I think, I don't know if it's Les Brown who say, you know, in life, when you do difficult things, or when you do easy things, life is difficult. But when you do difficult things, life becomes quite easy or something, you know, along those lines. So I definitely agree with that now you really started from a young age I mean to have those opportunities I don't know if that was a life chances coincidences or you you, you seek for for those things uh, but now you've done you know many things and uh, you started a big journey looking back would you say there would be anything you would do differently uh, what did you learn about yourself that you maybe didn't you know expect in the good or in the less good yeah you know what's interesting is that even though those things happened to me when I was 19 or I should say I chose those things. They didn't happen to me, but I chose them. I was a pretty average student. I mean, in high school, I was like 40th percentile of my class. I mean, I was like right in the middle. I had no college scholarships. Like I was just a regular guy. I mean, my parents always heard my teachers talking about how much potential I had. I mean, they were always talking about my potential. But for me, it really took sort of a, a really, it really took sort of a journey to finding something I cared enough about. And that, that switch really flipped for me my senior year of high school when I had some opportunities to begin serving other people. And I just fell in love with 
that feeling that you get when it was like, oh my goodness, you know, this isn't just about me feeling good. This isn't just about me making more money or, or getting college scholarships. It's like when I can use the tools I already have to make someone else's life better, like that's when I started feeling most alive. And so that really sort of ignited something in me. It kind of lit a spark in me. I was, I wanted to do more and more of that. And, and then I think some of those early successes, they build on one another. You know, when you, when you try something really hard and it worked, it gives you more confidence. I mean, I, I tell people all the time, doing hard things or having courage or having compassion, those are all muscles. They get bigger when you exercise. People that you see that are really courageous or, or really compassionate or, or really creative, they didn't just stumble out of bed and become that kind of thing. They've been practicing that art in little ways when no one noticed. They were practicing that art even before they knew they could be great at it. By the time we see them, of course, we say, whoa, that person is amazing. I wish I could be like that. But that person was like that, barely, just like we all are. And then they just, they made it an absolute foundational part of their life to practice that thing, you know? And so, so I always tell people, like, people say, like, Chris, I want to be more generous. But what advice would you have? I'm like, be more generous today. Like, find a way today to be more generous and then tomorrow and then the next day. And if you were looking for a way to be more generous and choosing to be more generous a hundred days in a row, 500 days in a row, a thousand days in a row, you're going to be an extraordinarily generous person because that muscle will have grown so large at that point that you'll just do it without even thinking. And, and that's beautiful. I mean, that's what we all want to get to that point with something in our lives, but we typically want to skip the work. You know, we, yeah, we love the idea of something more than the actual journey of something. And the problem is the journey often is the something. I mean, that's where all of the magic happens is on the path from where we are and where we want to be. By the time we get where we want to be, we're actually usually not even satisfied anymore because now we have new goals and new visions and a new journey we want to go on. It's not really about getting to that destination. It's about doing the work that makes us better every step along the way to that destination. And then we look up somewhere along the way we, and we surprise ourselves and we realize that we're a different person. And, but it doesn't happen. You know, there's no secret potion. There's no magic formula. There's no book you can read. There, there's no podcast you can listen to. It's a very individual journey and it, and it takes a lot of work, but it's really beautiful. Find yourself on it. Yeah, it's rewarding. And you're right. It's all about making a consistent effort to, you know, to, to take action. Because I think a lot of people think about what they want to do and it's very inspiring. They're motivated. But actually doing, you know, a small step is very important and doing it consistently, maybe every day or, you know, it's a good way to actually achieve your goal. And you talk about doing a microdose of good, if I remember, in one of your books. So you've tell us maybe a little bit about, I think you've written two books. I have two titles, two titles here. Correct me again. Again, if I'm wrong, billion hours of good, changing the world in 14 minutes at a time. And the second one, disrupting for good, using passion and persistence to create lasting change. So yep. doing microdose of good, tell us a bit more about that concept. Yeah, so my first, you got the titles perfectly correct. They're just flipped in order. So my first book came out in 2018 called Disrupting for Good. And my latest book, came out in the summer of 2021 called A Billion Hours of Good, 
really a billion hours of good changing the world 14 minutes at a time was a response. I was traveling around the US giving speeches about my first book called Disrupting for Good. And people were coming up to me after the speech and they would say, oh my gosh, I loved your speech. I love your story. I love what you're doing in Ghana. I love hearing about these disruptions. I wish I could do something like you. And I, I just got so frustrated listening to people say, I wish I could, because it was like they were putting me on some pedestal. Like I had been born with billions of dollars in the bank, or like I had some, you know, super secret, you know, power that was letting me do this stuff. And so I thought, okay, what are the, when, when people talk to me about wishing they could do more, what are some of those common themes? And, and the consistent theme to me in all those conversations was two things. People said, I don't have enough time. And they said, and I don't even know where to start, even if I had time. I said, okay, I'm going to write a book to solve those two problems. So a billion hours of good is really about getting hundreds of thousands of ordinary people to make a pledge that they're going to give 14 minutes a day. 14 minutes a day is 1% of our day. We're going to give 1% of our day, which adds up in a week to almost two hours and in a month to almost eight hours and in a year to almost a hundred hours. Now, if you said to most of us, hey, I want you to spend a hundred hours this year making sure the world around you is a better place. We would say, oh, I can never do that. I mean, a hundred hours, that's two and a half weeks of full-time work. There's no way. But 14 minutes a day, we all have 14 minutes a day. And I actually start the book by giving the reader a gift of 14 minutes a day by showing them some time hacks that can easily save more than 14 minutes a day. Just so even people can't say, oh, I don't even have 14 minutes. Says, okay, I'm going to give you a gift of 14 minutes a day right at the beginning. Then you have to give it back to the world. And so this is really, and then the second thing that people say, the objection is I wouldn't even know where to start. And for me, the beauty is every one of us has pieces of our lives, things we're already really good at doing that make us above average. Something we do every day that is a passion of ours or it's our job. We've had decades of training in it. We don't have to go discover some new thing. We just have to do the thing we already do really well in a way that doesn't just benefit us. Because typically we use that thing just for our benefit, for our families stability or income. But what if we gave that gift away to somebody else for 14 minutes a day? And so that's really what the book is about. It's about overcoming that objection that we don't have enough time and that we don't even know where to start. The real takeaway is if we want to change the world, we need to start where we are with what we have right now. And that's going to be different in five, 10 and 20 years from now. But we don't need to wait 5, 10, or 20 years to make a difference. That's a lie that just keeps us from activity. So let's start where we are with what we have right now, 14 minutes a day. And then over time, our impact will become more and more significant. Yeah, I think it's a great advice. And actually, you're right looking at it this way. You know, we all have 14 minutes that we can spend on doing something that can benefit others and not just us or our family, for example. Uh, you talked about some uh, tips that you maybe recommend in the books on how to, you know, be able to get these 14 minutes. Would you maybe like to share a few that you have? I'm happy to do this. So they range from silly, you know, just sort of funny, like, 
buy a larger coffee cup so you don't have to waste the time going back and forth refilling your coffee cup during the day to not having in-person meetings, moving at least one in-person meeting to Zoom, which not only typically makes it a smaller meeting because just generally we're a little quicker, but also we don't have to commute to and from. Also, we don't even have to change into our fancy work clothes. We can just have on a nice shirt and uh, jogging pants if we choose to. So it's from those things all the way into much more specific, like I highly encourage people to only check their email twice a day, uh, like 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. and use the rest of your workday to to actually get work done instead of being beholden to your inbox. I like to encourage people to divide their household chores into days of the week. So every Monday you do this chore, every Tuesday you do this chore, and then you don't have to think every day, oh, what, what do I need to get done today? Or, or look around and, and see, you just become automatic on, on doing that thing. So the truth is the number of time hacks are in the thousands if we wanted to. Social media, huge time suck for so many of us. So it's really about us having the intentionality that we want to take a piece of our lives that doesn't bring us meaning or purpose. We want to trade that for something that gives us deeper meaning and deeper purpose. And in doing so, we find we actually become better human beings. You know, the data is really clear that when we're generous and when we're creative and when we have courage, doesn't just make us better at helping others. It makes us better at our paid work as well um, because it's going to make us more creative and more compassionate and more well-liked all of those things in the work that we do that pays the bills as well. So it's really the ultimate win for everybody. Yeah. And it's very interesting. You're right. I think we all know that we should, you know, get organized in terms of doing, you know, tidying up our, our apartment and doing, you know, scheduling things or things that are not so meaningful that we anyway have to do and to have space for creativity to maybe have time to think. I think when we are so busy and disorganized, it's very difficult to be creative or to, to think of what you say, the unimagined future, which leads me to the next question about how do we imagine the imagined future, sorry. How, how do we do that? Do we take some time off? Do we, you know, go to a, like a desert island somewhere and be with our own thought? How do you do that on your side? Yeah, so I think this is something that sounds more complicated than it really has to be. So when we think about disruption, particularly, one of my definitions of disruption in my first book was that a disruptor dismantles accepted norms forges previously unimagined futures. And so I think it's really pretty simple. We have to say we know what the world looks like right now, but what would it look like if something changed? And so for me with Ghana and Mercy Project, I had to say, what would it look like in Ghana if children weren't trafficked into the fishing industry? You know, what is that previously unimagined future, right? I know the reality of right now. I know where we are. But if I was going to go on a journey to try to go somewhere else, what would that end place be? And for me, it was, well, it would be a a future where children didn't have to work as child slaves and where fishermen who were trafficked children themselves didn't have to work as owning small children, that they could go on the journey from shame to pride themselves. And then I started working backwards and saying, okay, If that's the previously unimagined future, what's it going to take to get from here to there? 
And then you start just filling in the blanks along that journey. Think of it as like mile markers along the road. You know, you don't have to solve every single one at one time, but it's really hard to go where you want to go if you don't know where you're going. I think the previously unimagined future, it really sets an anchor in the ground for us. It reminds us, it tethers us to where we're wanting to go. I think it's really, you know, you don't have to go to a deserted island. I do think you need to be intentional. And I do think you need to ask, what is it in my life or my neighborhood or my city or my country or my world that makes me uncomfortable? What is some reality or some truth that's not okay? And it just bothers me, like deep in my soul, it just feels wrong. And what would it look like if that thing wasn't like it is? And then work backwards from there on what are those steps that would need to be undertaken to get from where you are to where you want to be. All right, absolutely. No, I, I think I definitely agree with you that having a vision, a sort of direction to take, even though you might not get there, you might go to a different, you know, like goals at the end of your journey, but it's very important. It's true that, you know, it seems like such a big mountain when you want to do good into this world and there's so many things and you go in one direction and then you go somewhere else and you lose sense of purpose. You don't know anymore why you are doing those things. So it's, uh, it's good to structure it, like you say, and see create some space to think and have a vision, a certain direction to follow and do those micro doses of, of good and uh, actions, you know, regularly, consistently. So. Absolutely. Now in, in the title of your book, you talk about creating lasting change, which I think is a key word because we all want, you know, to change things quickly, but they don't always last. What's the, you know, secret or recipe to create lasting change? How did you manage to do that, especially in the Ghana project? Because, you know, maybe, you know, it's still a difficult situation. Trafficking still happens. How do kids don't go back into that vicious circle? So if you can tell us a bit about it. Yeah, so I'm really passionate about uh, sustainable change. I mean, I think every person who's trying to make a meaningful difference in their own life or in the world, I mean, we all want to make sure the work we're doing is meaningful. And the best way to make it meaningful is to make sure it's going to outlast our lifetimes. You know, this is the difference between going on a diet and adopting healthier eating habits, right? And Um, this is the difference between being forced into an exercise program for 30 days versus choosing to be a person who enjoys some form of exercise for most of our lives. So it's really lasting change is about playing the long game, mm -hmm. not taking shortcuts, not expecting that we can do the easy way out or the path of least resistance, but really being intentional and saying, okay, How can I build something that's going to outlast my lifetime? And, you know, when it comes to nonprofits, I really believe that every nonprofit should be attempting to work themselves out of a job. And if their process is not one that would ever allow them to work themselves out of the job, I think we need to ask the hard question of why. Well, why would our process always require us to be in the middle of it? Because then, it's easy to make the case that it kind of becomes about us instead of about actually solving the problem. And, you know, some people say, Chris, 
it's crazy that, that I would want to work myself out of a job. I mean, I have to make a living. I have a family. I'm like, there's always going to be problems to be solved. I mean, it's crazy if we think because we solve one problem sustainably that there's nothing we could ever do again the rest of our lives to, to make the world a better place. I mean, sadly, there's always going to be plenty of problems. I don't think we lack problems. I think we lack creative solution. And a lot of sustainability to me means the complexity of our solutions match the complexity of the problem. Too long we've tried to solve complex problems with simple solutions. And then we're frustrated when it doesn't work. And that's just, that's not realistic. And it's certainly not sustainable. Right, absolutely. No, I, I completely understand that. And I think, like you say, when you educated yourself uh, in regards to the uh, Ghanaian culture, uh, you know, having local partners, you went right into the subject, not trying to implement easy solutions. Maybe a lot of NGOs could try to implement standard solutions across the continent, for example. Uh, not that I'm an expert in it, but I understand where you're coming from on that. So, And you've done the work and you've been successful in doing that. It means that that's the right path that people should follow. So um, absolutely. Now, in regards to that Ghanaian project, do you, are you planning to extend this project to other regions of the world or what's the kind of plan for, for this project? That's a great question. You know, we've debated this for several years now, even early on in the life of the project, we talked about, do we want to have more width over depth? This was probably five years into our journey. And at that time, we decided to go deeper in Ghana rather than wider into other countries. But I do think that there's a real opportunity in the next few years, um, now that we've built a sustainable process that I do think could be replicated. No, I would love a franchise model where someone desires to do something similar to what we've done, but maybe doesn't have the experience or the, the process build that model love to partner with people like that to expand into other countries. So I don't know that it's us necessarily at Mercy Project that would be going into other countries, but I could definitely see us creating sort of a training camp or a boot camp type place where we're sending people off, launching them into their own passionate projects uh, where they can use what's taken us 11 years to learn, they can save themselves some of the pain and some of the mistakes. And now they can go and make a meaningful difference in their place. Yeah, I think you've, you know, you've kind of an expert in what you've been doing consistently for the last 11 years, I think you, you say. Yeah. So you have kind of a roadmap that people could implement That's for right. seminar cases. And I checked your website and uh, you, you have a, a map of the process it takes with all the steps, like, you know, maybe conversation with the villages to, you know, uh, till the end, really getting out of, you know, slavery, etc., trafficking, etc. So it's really, I think it's really meaningful what you do and also very detailed and you have process processes in place, not just words out there on your website. So I was very impressed with that. And I, I was myself almost studying the processes. It was like a mini class I took by checking your, your website. So uh, now in regards to, you know, your personal journey and looking at your own future, you seem like a passionate person. What other causes are you passionate about? Do you have plans for your own life outside at Ghania projects, other projects, other things that, you know, push your curiosity out there? Yeah, I'm always dabbling in 
a lot of things. I've, I'm an entrepreneur by heart. And uh, right now I'm working with a software company here in the U.S., helping them with their growth. They have built a product that helps make sure people aren't paying more than they're supposed to be in their taxes every year. So to help families, you know, re realize money that's being wasted that maybe could be used for setting up children's college funds or something like that. So I'm doing that. I, I wrote the two books. I do a lot of speaking, do some business consulting and do some nonprofit consulting. I started a marathon 10 years ago, which is in my hometown. Mm -hmm. And we've now had over 20,000 runners that have uh, completed that marathon or half marathon in the last 10 years, which is also a fundraiser for local children's charities, including Mercy Project. Uh, and we've raised about a million dollars for local children's charities in the last 10 years. So, you know, I don't know. I mean, it seems like I'm never really looking for something to do. It seems like things kind of fall into fall into my lap and I get opportunities. I just weigh them and ask if they're a good use of my time and energy. And if I feel like I can make a real impact. The last seven years, I've taught a business class in the local public university um, as part of their nonprofit certificate about using business to solve social problems, which is essentially what we did with the Mercy Project. So, you know, I feel like so many great opportunities exist out there. I'm not necessarily looking for them, but I'm always excited when they come along, always eager to be a part of something that can make a real difference and make people's lives better. So even if I gave you a really clear answer today, it would probably be different in six months from now. So I think it's best just to say every day I wake up excited right now for life, thankful for the work that I get to do to help make the world a better place, thankful for a healthy family. I've got four young kids and my wife and just, I'm grateful. It feels, it feels like a dream sometimes that I get paid uh, to do things that certainly don't feel like work. They feel very meaningful and I feel really great, grateful for that. And I hope more people can experience that feeling because I think that's when we're really at our very, very best. Right, absolutely. It's very inspiring. And I hope people who listen to that podcast will wake up and, and feel motivated to, to do things as well. I think we, again, we all want to try different things, but you're really describing all the steps and kind of a methodology, be able to do those micro doses of good uh, over time regularly. And it's interesting you say that, you know, things come to you. I believe that the more more we do things, you know, more things come to us when we are open, right, to, to life and, and doing things and also the risk of failing because that's also part of the game. And uh, I, I want to talk about failure and failing. I know that you try through your speeches to, you know, empower people. How can we give confidence to people who are scared of failing? How do you yourself maybe deal with failure, if you find it as a failure for some things you, you did in the past? Yeah, so I think one of the first things is, we have to redefine what failure is in the first place. I can't take credit for this quote, but I really appreciated one time I heard someone say, at every moment, we're either succeeding or learning, but there's no, you know, there's no failing because if we're allowing whatever happened that maybe didn't go the way we wanted to go, then we're going to be in a position where we're better suited the next time. And I think that sort of mentality really changes the way we approach trying new things. I think for me personally, I write about this a little bit in my first book. I think for me personally, I have to remind myself that I am the same person 
when I choose to try something new, whether it's successful or it fails, I'm still the same person after that success or failure that I was before that success or failure. You know, to sit here today with you and have a conversation, there's a million or more moments that have led us to this place. A million conversations, a million thoughts, a million decisions when no one was looking. Those are who I am. And if I'm comfortable and confident in who I am, that I'm a person of character, that I'm a person of integrity, that I'm a person who truly wants to do good and right for others and look for opportunities to do that, then even if I try something specific and I fail at something particular, that doesn't make, doesn't discount all of those other things that are really to be true about me. In fact, if I'm able to fail and still maintain my character and my integrity, then it really just validates all those million things that have been happening in the previous years. And so my advice would be to be really honest with yourself. Are you satisfied with who you are as a human being right now? Are you proud of who you are as a human being? When you're laying in bed about to go to sleep at night and you're by yourself with your thoughts, are you proud of the person you are? And if you are, then you shouldn't be worried about failing at all because no failure is going to go back against all those other things that are true about you. But if you're not happy with who you are, if you're not who you want to be, if you're not living out the values and integrity and character that you say matter the most to you, then maybe it's okay to feel some pressure about failing because probably says a little bit about the stakes being too high in that particular thing because you're trying to make up for something else. And that's probably a good thing to be introspective about. Yeah, that's great. I think doing a little break and a summary about who we are, getting to know ourselves, right? We spend so much time maybe, you know, working, being busy and not so much time with ourselves, with our own thoughts and kind of, uh, you know, sitting down and thinking about what we've done so far and what we want to do. Asking ourselves that is very important. So I know maybe that's going to be my plan for tonight when I go to bed and ask myself, am I doing the right thing? Am I happy with what I'm doing? And that's definitely important. We, we can lose track of time and track of ourselves. And uh, yeah. in terms of, uh, you, you've mentioned so you have four children, I think that's, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Do you see them, you know, inspired by what you do? Do you see them thinking as well about how they can make, uh, you know, positive changes in the world? Are you taking them on that journey? You know, how do, are you dealing with, with that? Yeah, definitely. Three of my four kids have already been to Africa with me to Ghana. Uh, and they went when they were young, pretty young. Oldest, I think, was eight when she went and the others were seven and four. So... So they're involved in that. But even beyond that, even just in our local community, yeah, I mean, the answer is yes. I want my children to, I think most parents, we want our children to be kind, compassionate, global citizens. And we're not always sure how to make that happen. And I think sometimes we overprotect our children because we want to keep them away from the realities of the world. But it's difficult for our children to become kind and compassionate if they don't realize how much brokenness and pain there is in the world in the first place. And so one thing my wife and I really try hard to do is we don't hold anything back from our kids. Like, you know, when our kids come home and they say, hey, you know, I heard this really hard thing was happening in our country. You know, we're not like, oh, no, no, no. You don't need to worry about that. You're just a kid. We're like, we have a child appropriate conversation about that hard thing, about about racism, about economic inequality, about politics in America. I mean, that's a mess, you know, about the environment. I mean, 
we have these conversations with our kids where we, we say, listen, uh, this is really, this is an important thing. And this matters to our family because it impacts a lot of other people. And, you know, it might not impact us directly because, you know, like in America right now, there's a lot of conversation the last couple of years around black lives. You know, my family is a family of white descent. You know, it might seem like that's not an appropriate conversation for young children, but the truth is like, we feel like we have an obligation to make sure our children understand that the world can be a cruel and evil place, that that shouldn't scare us or make us live in fear, but that it should inspire us, embolden us, that we want to be part of a better world. That doesn't happen by putting our fingers in our ears and pretending we don't see bad things or hear bad things. It happens because we're honest about things that need to be better. So we try to do that really openly with our children. And in doing that, you know, we see the fruit in them that they are more kind than we were at their age. They are more thoughtful. They are looking at ways to help others. They are asking how they can make a difference. They're coming up with ideas of things. You know, I think it's really important that we help our children understand that the world is not as big as we think. We have a lot more in common with everyone around us than we have different. I think that message starts in the home. And when our children really receive that, it makes them better people. And that's one of our biggest goals as parents. That's great. That's inspiring. I hope all parents listening will tomorrow, you know, start raising awareness about what's going on, you know, in the neighbor's house or in the neighbor country. And seeing more of the world is so important, like yourself, taking that trip, getting interested. Uh, it helps develop compassion as well, which I think the world is really in need of that uh, these days. So I do hope this conversation we're having today, as well as all the projects you've been involved, all your motivation we spread to, to other people and I'm pretty sure that's the case starting with your own children your own family as well so that's very very inspiring uh, now if people want to get involved in your organization in some ways how can they find you online if you could give us a few links a few places we can find you yeah so mercyproject.net is mercy project I can be contacted through my website which is just meet m-e-e-t chrisfield.com and I can be contacted through there. And then, of course, on social, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, my handle is Disruption Chris. So people can find me uh, that way. And the books that you referenced earlier are both on Amazon, both in the paperback version, as well as Kindle, as well as being on Audible with an audio version, too. So they're all out there if people are looking for it. Great. Excellent. Well, I'm really thankful to have that conversation today. You're very inspiring. And uh, I do hope you continue to, you know, take those opportunities and then create lasting changes in the world. So thank you so much again, Chris, for joining the conversation today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And it was really an honor. Thanks a lot. Bye. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hustlers for a Cause. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss a new episode. This helps us keep interviewing incredible individuals and sharing their remarkable stories with you. This episode of Hustlers for a Cause was brought to you by Blabberjacks. If you're an influencer that's creating meaningful change in the world and you're looking for help increasing the reach and distribution of your message, contact Blabberjacks today. 
See you next time on Hustlers for a Cause. Until then, keep hustling.